Welcome to PrismaCast, the podcast of Prisma Center for Jewish Day Schools. My name is Elliot Rabin, and I am Prisma's Director of Thought Leadership. Today's podcast is part of a series called Research Encounter, featuring a conversation between a researcher and a day school leader about a recent work of scholarship. Our guests today are Dr. Moshe Krakowski, Director of the Azrieli Master's Program and Associate Professor at the Azrieli Graduate School of Jewish Education and Administration at Yeshiva University. And with him is Rabbi Daniel Alter, the head of school at the Mariah School, a nursery to eighth grade school in Englewood, New Jersey. Moshe and Daniel will be talking about some insights from cognitive science into the teaching of Jewish studies. The conversation is prompted by Moshe's review of contemporary cognition research in an article entitled, Not All Practice Makes Perfect, Teaching and Testing for Knowledge Automaticity in Jewish Day Schools. Welcome to you both. Uh, Moshe, let's begin with you. This term, cognition research, may not be familiar to everyone, certainly wasn't so familiar to me. So could you tell us what it is and what its importance is in your view for Jewish education? So when we talk about cognition, really we're talking about thinking. A lot of people think that this means that cognition is equivalent with what they call brain science, but brain science is really when people work on the actual uh, hardware of the brain, the actual physical brain and what parts of the brain do what sorts of things, how the neurons interact. When we talk about cognition, that's way too basic a level for us to think about the sorts of things that matter for learning in a classroom or for navigating everyday life. That's very, very fundamental. So we're thinking more at by analogy, the software level, the programming. Um, And when we talk about programming, we talk about the code that programmers might write um, that gives directions to a computer program. So again, only an analogy, but similarly, we're talking in cognition about the sorts of things that are going on in people's minds, so that's a distinction, mind, not brain, that um, might uh, influence the way in which they are able to learn things and just their general thinking. So is cognition research, is that something you've delved into a lot in your, in your professional work? And how do you connect cognition research to what goes on in Jewish education? So yes, I, I um, did my PhD in something called learning sciences, which is the science of how people learn. And it's an application of cognition research to um, classroom environment specifically. So obviously there is a connection or else there wouldn't be a field of learning sciences, but the sorts of things that learning scientists think about are things like um, given what we know about how kids think, what's the best way to structure a particular curriculum? Given the interrelationship between the subject matter and human thinking, Um, What sorts of practices might you do in a classroom that will promote learning? How do you deal with students' misconceptions about uh, their struggles? What can we teach teachers about student thinking that will allow them to be um, responsive 
to their own students in the classroom and make sure that every kid is actually learning rather than, for example, um, just skating by with superficial answers and never really uh, accomplishing anything or not even that, not getting even the superficial answers. So we, that's the sort of thing that um, I've been uh, interested in in my own research. And, um, and it's something that matters a lot for Jewish studies classrooms because not every subject matter domain is the same and the findings from math or English might not necessarily be appropriate for something uh, very text-based like Hebrew Bible, Chumash. Fascinating. So you use this word automaticity in your paper and uh, in the title. So that's another term that I, I imagine uh, leaves people scratching scratching their heads. Uh, what, what, do you, what does it mean? Yeah, so I think it's something that people actually can probably catch pretty easily if they think about how um, they themselves or their children um, start to learn to read and they first are making sounds and uh, going k, a, t, and trying to put it together. And you can get by reading, um, sounding out each sound. But if you want to be a fluid reader and a fluent reader, you have to at some point be able to put those together in an automatic way, in a way that doesn't require the thought process, in a way that does not require attention. And the reason is because our working memory, the, the active memory that we use is very limited. We have a lot of long-term memory, but what we can use at any one time, what we can remember in any moment is very limited. And so if you're spending all of your mental energy trying to work out the sounds of the words, you have no room left to think about the meaning of the sentence. And certainly that shows up in Jewish studies when kids struggle with the text, if they're having difficulty even reading the text and they're barely able to read it, then they're certainly not devoting energy translating it. And even more so, they're not devoting mental energy to understanding what it is that they're reading. So in all domains, um, we want students to build up the basic skills um, to become, for those skills to become automatic. And then we want the next level skills to become automatic. The more that you can make automatic, the more that you can do in terms of deeper, higher level thinking um, in regard to a particular subject area. So that's, a, that's certainly a necessary step to have some automaticity, but the more that you can make automatic, the more you free up to do more uh, in-depth thinking. So I have to say, it, what you say makes total sense to me, but the idea of teaching towards automaticity uh, doesn't sound very very exciting, right? So I, I'm I'm wondering um, why, in your estimation, schools have difficulty um, getting their kids to achieve the levels of automaticity that will make Jewish studies more possible, more interesting for them. Yeah. So this is something that I think also would be good to hear from Rabbi Alter, um, but I think that. If you go back uh, more than 100 years ago and you think about old-fashioned boarding school rote memorization and drilling, which we really have not pursued uh, nowadays, 
you have a number of strengths and a number of weaknesses. The strengths are that the kids, by repeating things over and over again, actually do build up a lot of automaticity. The weaknesses are obvious. Number one, it's mind-numbingly boring, and children tune out. Um, and so it's only those who don't tune out who gain the automaticity. And um, in addition, it's, um, it's often at the expense of any sort of deeper understanding, meaning, meaning they don't, they stop with the drilling and don't really pursue the deeper understanding. So you gain the automaticity, but you have nothing to do with it. And so for 100 years, there's already been a backlash. And the trend nowadays, rightfully so, is to try to find ways to um, give students agency over their own learning and to allow them to delve deep and to engage in complex ideas. But I think that while we've done that, we have accidentally also lost some of the features of, of previous practices that may have allowed for automaticity. And so we end up losing um, something in the, in the uh, transition. And so the ideal from my perspective would be to find a way to still allow students to have agency, to still allow students to pursue their own understanding, but to also have some structures in place that give them the opportunity to review and repeat and to build the automaticity through some of the um, features that I articulate in the, in the paper that have been shown to really um, uh, enhance students' ability to remember and retain information. Okay, thank you. Maybe we'll get to some of those, the details uh, later on, but I want to now turn to Daniel and ask him what uh, your reaction is to Moshe's ideas in his presentation and as mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, so I actually agree that a lot of it is about balance. I, I think that, you know, some of these ideas, unfortunately, even though they're based in, um, you know, in, in real science and data are countercultural. Um, we're sort of fighting a culture um, which makes it a little bit harder to do, partly because of the history that, that Dr. Krakowski just described. Um, I, I think there are other factors, too, in my mind. I, I think there's this focus, this, you know, intense focus nowadays on finding teachers who are charismatic. Um, I, I think, Elliot, because of that issue you mentioned, you know, is they, everyone's asking, is automaticity, is it not exciting enough? The, the danger in the, you know, the, the focusing too much on charisma, I think, is that in the end, it potentially leads to a dumbing down of the curriculum. We're so nervous about students being bored at any given time that we're not willing to do the hard work. And what ends up happening is years down the road, you see these kids who can barely read Hebrew and you say, I don't understand, they're in seventh grade, they're in 10th grade, how is it possible? They've gone through a Jewish day school for all these years and they still can't read Hebrew. Um, and, and that's where I think that, and, and like, like Dr. Krakowski said, if they're putting all their energy on reading the words, then we're not gonna be able to do you know, high level analysis. Um, and the unfortunate reality, I think, in today's world is it's those charismatic teachers who are, you know, jumping up and down at the front of the classroom, who are the ones that everyone looks at um, without knowing the science and the data and says, wow, those are the best teachers. I, I think we're hurting ourselves. Um, so I think that's one of the challenges that we, we face in the field itself. Yeah, I think that, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I also think there is, 
in addition, a certain faddishness to education research. Education research is really hard to do well. You can't randomize kids the way that you can in other fields and really do large scale um, hard science research. And as a result, new things come into play all the time and people jump on them and they want to adopt whatever's newest and fanciest and most exciting. So, so sometimes there are really strong benefits, but not always. And not everything that's newest is, is best. So I think that aside from the issue of charisma, there's also the sense that, oh, if you're doing the newest thing, then you are really up to date and you're a great teacher. Whereas some of the older things, not everything, it, I certainly do not mean to imply that we should be going back to the 1800s in terms of schooling, but that there are certain aspects of, of older practices that nonetheless have some very profound strengths and that our goal always should be not whether the practice is new or old, but how our understanding of learning relates to the particular practice in regards to this subject. So when I'm doing Talmud with students, what do we know about learning? What do we know about text comprehension, argumentation, which is a huge field in the science education literature, argumentation, um, and there's a lot of literature on that. And what do we know about how students engage with analysis and then move from there? Okay, so what does that imply about what we should be doing in the classroom to make sure that students are able to acquire the skills and able to retain the information beyond just the next test? And so I think that, that when you start from a basic premise of what the literature to the extent that the literature can show us anything. And it, it, there aren't so many findings that are really solid. In the paper, I tried to point to a few of the most solid findings. Um, to the extent that we know what works in terms of learning, let's see how we can build that around a particular subject matter. And that might end up being a mix of older things, older types of practices, and newer types of practices. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's also a, a, a aspect to it. I think that Rabbi Alter, coming from the actual head of school perspective, um, probably sees the issue of charismatic teachers more frequently than me, who I only come into classes to observe our student teachers uh, every once in a while. Um, it's not as much on my radar, but I can imagine that that is also a major, a major issue um, in addition to what I've said. So you do draw out uh, a few concrete suggestions from the, from the literature. I, I wonder if you could just explain what those are. There are a few things. One is we know that um, when learning something new, it is extremely valuable for students to first struggle a little on their own to try to make sense of it, to try to work on it without being guided first. There's some dispute over how much they should be allowed to struggle and in what contexts, but when you have the opportunity to work on it on your own first, to struggle a little bit with it, then when you get the information later on, when the teacher starts explaining things to you or giving you assignments, it is retained at a much deeper level. That's number one. Number two, are a cluster, it's really a cluster of three things, something 
called spacing, testing, and interleaving. So spacing means that when you space out your study, it's more effective than when the study is, is in one um, block. So if I have the opportunity to study um, two hours the night before the test or an hour a week before and an hour the day before, the hour a week before and the hour the day before will allow me to retain the information better. Interleaving is similar. If you mix up the types of problems that you're working on and don't only work on one type of problem, but rather on multiple types of problems so that you're switching between problems, that also helps you learn the material better. And finally, testing is if you have a choice, should I review the chapter by reading it or should I test myself or have someone test me on the chapter? Testing is much more effective. And the reason that these work is because, and the analogy to lifting weights I think is a good one, is that you wanna be practicing pulling up this information from long-term memory. So building that muscle that will help you retain the information. When you are just reviewing a chapter, for example, you're just recognizing the ideas in the text. But when you are testing yourself, you have to recall the information, and that's harder. Same thing with spacing. If I learned it a week ago and now I'm coming back to it, there's a certain amount of effort that's required to try to recall it from long-term memory, and that builds up the quote-unquote muscle uh, in your mind that builds pathways and connections to this information, making them significantly stronger. If I'm just working on a set of problems um, that are all the same, then I'm not really thinking about how to approach the problem, what sort of problem is this, because I'm just doing all the same things over and over again. If you mix up the problems, then for every problem, I have to stop and think, what sort of problem is this? What's the right solution? And that work is more effective. So the, the practical takeaways for me are that it's very valuable for schools to go back and review older material, to do frequent low stakes testing. So it doesn't have to count for a huge part of the grade, but to review what we did last week, to do a little test on what we did last week, to test on what we did a few months ago, to have a school approach that values the things that were learned earlier in the year and where the students expect that they might be tested on things that they learned earlier in the year, so that um, when they are approaching their study, they're A, studying older things, B, even in the test itself, even if they don't get it right, there's a, something productive about about call, trying to call it up from memory. And as a result, you have kids who will end up retaining much more and ultimately building a much more fluent automaticity in the sorts of things that we really want them to be able to build automaticity in. So I, uh, when I'm listening to you, I'm reminded of uh, the expression from Turkey about the fums skara agra, that, uh, it's really the, the old wisdom that, that is still so true uh, in cognitive science, apparently, that when students, uh, to a certain degree, um, have to work harder, the, the material gets entered into their uh, long-term memory, and they learn it better and deeper, and they're able to use it more effectively. Daniel, what, yeah. are, what are your thoughts? Oh, sorry. I would just I would just want to clarify, though, before Rabbi Alter, um, that it's not just how hard; it's the type of work that you're doing while working hard 
that matters as well. It's not just any hard work. Yeah, so I, I would say um, I have two thoughts, um, both from what I see in the field. So one is, you know, when, as we have this conversation, right, there's um, someone who works in the field of academia, someone who is, for lack of a better term, in the trenches. I, I think we might be missing one seat, and I'll tell you who that seat is. Um, the Judaic curriculum developers. And I'll, I'll tell you why I'm saying that. When I look and I compare general studies and Judaic studies, what I see happening in some of my general studies classes, um, there's a lot more of what Dr. Krakowski is describing in the general studies classes. Um, and if I ask my curriculum you know, person why that's the case, she will tell you, look what we have available to us, right? So when we talk about cyclical review, interleaving, these are terms that, that uh, the, the curriculum developers, when it comes to general studies, are familiar with these terms, some of them at least. I'm sure some are not. Um, and, and that's why the general studies teachers are able to implement them in a far better fashion. Um, I, I think when it comes to Judaics, there's far less um, you know, curriculum development in general, so that Judaic teachers are sort of doing it on their own and trying their best, but I don't think that that's such a productive way to really be thoughtful about these things because our teachers are trying to provide a dual curriculum, working very hard in, Jude in Jewish schools. We don't have nearly enough planning time. Um, so I think that's the seat at the table for us to think about that probably has to be part of this conversation. So that's one thought. Um, the other thought is something that is that I see a lot that is sort of a problem that we have created is that, and I'm talking primarily even more so about our strongest students. Our strongest students are conditioned to get hundreds on their tests, right? So what that means for them is they want clarity. They want to get everything right. They, they really get anxious if they feel like they don't understand something and they think they're doing something wrong or even worse, they think the teacher is doing something wrong. Some of the teachers who I have seen implement some of these, uh, some of these ideas um, often we will get students coming up to the administrator and saying, like, I just don't understand. She's not such a good teacher. Um, when often that's actually, it's actually the opposite, right? This is a teacher who, who's really pushing some of these issues, forcing the, the students to, to work a lot harder. I'll give you just one practical example. So, you know, when we talk about middle school in subjects like Gemara or Chumash, we usually have clarity over what we're trying to achieve. Uh, Navi is a subject where there's a lot more diversity of opinion, like what exactly do we want to get out of Navi? So a few years ago, I said I wanted to teach an honors level Navi class, and I wanted to do it in Hebrew because we were, we're in the process of moving towards stronger Hebrew language skills. Um, and as we were doing this, I started giving the kids Chavruta time. And um, as they were having their Chavruta time, which they honestly didn't like, they obviously prefer to be spoon-fed, and these are very bright, strong students who are you know, getting high 90s on their tests, um, and, and they pushed back a little bit, A, with teaching in Hebrew, because English is easier, but even more importantly, with the Chavruta time. They preferred for me to just lecture frontally, um, and I kept, kept pushing it, and then when they got stuck, when they were learning, and, and Nevi'im Rishonim, which we usually do in middle school, I believe firmly that our students um, with a little bit of support, maybe in Mitsudat David, Mitsudat Zion, maybe a few words in English, they can independently navigate, um, you, know, um, you know, most of Nevi'im Rishonim. And I think that speaks to some of the issues that Dr. Krakowski is talking about. Um, but the kids really push back because it's a lot more difficult to do it that way. No doubt in my mind that if the kids are learning the Chavruta, they will, you know, a year from now, two years from now, they will remember more of Nevi'im Rishonim. Um, so we would spend a bunch of days a week just learning the Chavruta, 
Um, and then we could do the analysis afterwards. We would spend a class or two talking about what they learned and stuff. It was really, really hard for the kids because there were times when they weren't sure if they got a pasuk 100% right. And they really had trouble moving on to the next pasuk knowing that maybe I didn't get it all right. They're not conditioned that way. That's not the way we're teaching these kids, especially in Judaics where everyone keeps saying, well, we want them to be happy. We want them to, to be smiling after every class. Um, and I think that's something we all need to think about. We're actually, we just started recently on a process where we are looking at our entire Navi curriculum. In my mind, if we have kids learning Bechavruta from sixth grade through eighth grade, by the time they're done in eighth grade, I think their skills are going to be so far superior to the old model where we were doing, you know, all the things that is in his article, which I recommend everyone reading. In his article, he said, where he, he you know, recommends not to do. Um, so I, I think this is very relevant to us in the classroom today. So Moshe, um, what do you th what do you think about Daniel's statements? I mean, he's saying that even though you're just kind of presenting, seemingly just presenting the cognitive science and the implication for Jewish studies, that there are deeper cultural barriers to actually carrying this out. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I. I teach in a, an environment where our students are master's students in Jewish ed who are going to be teaching in exactly the sorts of modern Orthodox schools that Rabbi Walter heads, in fact, in his school uh, in some cases. And um, when I talk about this with my students, I do get a lot of pushback precisely over the issue of culture and what the students and the parents expect um, and the feasibility of actually implementing some of this. And one of the things I point to is that I do a lot of my research in uh, what we might call American Haredi schools, so very right-wing schools, including most recently um, the um, Hasidic schools in Brooklyn, a uh, project that is uh, partially sponsored by the Mandel Center at Brandeis University, um, where I've been in these classrooms that in some of these schools, not all of them, but in some of these schools, it really is like the uh, 1800s. I mean, it really, some of the methodology looks um, very different. Um, but yet, one of the things that's common to all of these Hasidic schools is that the head of school, or in some of the bigger schools, together with a bunch of assistant principals, every Thursday comes into the class and orally Farhers gives an exam, an oral exam to every kid in the class every Thursday. And he marks in his guide, in his grade book on different, depending on the school and depending on the age, different criteria that he's looking for. Um, and, and has a sense of what every kid, if you ask him, any kid in the school, what they're able to do, what they're not able to do, he knows. So from an assessment perspective, it's great, but there's, in relation to what we're talking about here, there's a learning aspect to that too. The process of going through that um, for the students every week to know, and this is in addition to their written tests, to every week have the head of school come in and grill you um, means that you are doing, and the, and the grilling is not just on that week, it's on everything they've learned all year. So I've been in classes where he'll ask questions from way earlier in the year. And, and honestly, I was very both surprised and impressed in multiple schools, the degree to which um, 
most of the students really handled it. Like I would say 80 to 90% handled it just fine. That's a rough, I didn't actually, you know, do the hard research on this, but just a rough estimate. And so what I tell my students is it's not impossible. It does require a culture change, but um, given the right environment, the kids can take to it and the, the principals can enact it in all sorts of very um, interesting and compelling ways. Maybe you wouldn't run the school exactly the way that a Hasidic school is run, but there are certain elements certainly that might be um, that you can maybe import and and adapt to a, a different day school context. And I, I think it's possible. I, I think there are cultural barriers and I think expectations are different, but um, it's certainly feasible to, um, to create a new culture. Beautiful. Daniel, do you want to take the last word? No, I mean, I'll just make one, one last comment. I think that the culture piece is really important. I think that right now, um, it's not even just about students, who we mentioned before, and parents in terms of what, they, what they're looking for. I think it's even in terms of teachers. I think there's a lot of education and communication that has to happen for us to get all the stakeholders on board. Um, but I would say that honestly, like these issues are too important not to work on that. So I think these are usually important issues and, you know, excited to continue to be trying to push forward and, and work on some of these things because um, it's, it's, it's just going to make things better for our students. I thank you both for a really uh, stimulating uh, conversation that really perfectly models the give and take between uh, a researcher and a practitioner in the day school field. If you'd like to continue the conversation with either of our guests today, please feel free to contact me, Elliot Raven, at elliotr at prisma.org. To learn more about Prisma, go to our website, www.prisma.org. Follow us on social media at Prisma CJDS for all things Prisma and the Day School Network. Thank you for tuning in to PrismaCast today. We hope you enjoy. We'll come back again soon for future episodes.